Hello and welcome to the Tofugu Podcast. My name is Michael. I'm joined here today by Helen McCarthy, who is co-author of the Anime Encyclopedia. You've probably read it. Uh, the author of A Brief History of Manga and the founder of Anime UK, the UK's very first anime magazine. Hello, Helen. Hello. How's it going? It's wonderful. Over here in the UK, it's about, about 9 p.m., so we're already into the dark of a spring night, and it's great fun to be talking anime and manga. Yes, yes. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. So could you take a moment just to tell us a little bit about, about yourself or listeners who might not know who you are or probably have read something you've written but might not known that you have written it? Where, where I started with all this was, as, as many, many great stories start, I met a guy. I met a guy and he was just out of college and he and his friends had gone on their post-college trip and they'd gone to Spain. And as you may know, Europe for quite a long time has had manga in translation and anime in translation on kids' TV, mm -hmm. um, localized into their own languages. And Spain had Gona Guy's magnificent robot saga, Mazingaze, as um, I think they called it. Oh, they had some Spanish name for it. But Steve and his friends had seen this thing on TV and thought, wow. And they were all illustration of fine art students. So they were thrilled by the graphics. And when Steve and I started dating, he showed me this stuff that he brought back from his trip to Spain. And what thrilled me as a story fanatic was that this was a narrative in a language I didn't read because I certainly didn't read Japanese, but I didn't read Spanish either. And yet I could read this narrative by observing the flow of the manga pages. It was fantastic. He said, we have to find out more about this stuff. And he said, oh, there's cartoons as well. And then started telling me all about this stuff. I, my mind was blown. I was just so enthused. And then I discovered, and this was, this was 1981, mm -hmm. then I discovered that there was no book on Japanese animation or comics in English. And I had worked for a while for the British Library. I, I, I am, by, by, by education, a researcher, uh, a historian. And so I knew how to do research, and I went into it full tilt in all the academic collections, all the film collections. There were a few mentions of Japanese animation and Japanese comics, mostly along the lines of, this is Saturday morning, kiddie pap, it's not worth bothering with, except this guy called Osamu Tezuka, you might check him out sometime, kind of festive, mm -hmm. stuff. And that was it. That was all there was. There were little tiny mentions, and I thought, this is insane. If nobody is going to do a book about anime for me, I'd better write a book about anime. If nobody's going to do a book about manga, I'd better read a book about manga. So I started to research, um, started to accumulate material, and this was the idiocy of idiocies because I spoke and read absolutely no Japanese. Wow. And I had no comprehension of it, but there had to be a book. And I read good French and semi-usable Italian because I went to a French convent school, um, and Italian's not that difficult apart from verb tenses if you speak Latin, which I did. So I, I started in from those, and I found that there was literature in French, there was literature in Italian. Because I was a Star Trek fan, I was a Trekkie, mm -hmm. I had friends uh, in the USA, and they hooked me up with friends in the US military who'd just begun to be anime fans in the late 70s and early 80s um, because they were posted over to Japan and could get local TV. Mm -hmm. And so gradually I built my network, but it took me another 20 years before I could persuade a publisher that a book on anime and manga was a good idea. And the book that I really wanted, the Anime Encyclopedia, finally appeared in 2001, 20 years after I started researching it. And in order to get to it, in order to, to, to make that book, we had to build an industry in Britain. We had to found a fandom. We had to found a magazine. We had to essentially create the world that the book could exist in. So it was quite an adventure. Wow. So it, it sounds like, you know, you got interested in, in uh, anime and manga. So in 1981, you said. Yeah. Uh, and before the book could be finished, I mean, you, you were working on the book this whole time, but you also had to create a demand for it, uh, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, and is that where Anime UK comes in, the, the magazine that you founded? Oh, so much so. What, what encouraged me first, though, and I've got to pay tribute here to one of the, the greats of American popular culture scholarship. Frederick L. Schott mm -hmm. published Manga Manga through Kodansha USA in 1983. And I looked at Manga Manga and I thought, this is such a great book. 
other people are sure to write a book after seeing something as great as this. So I now can focus on writing on anime. Somebody else has got manga covered and covered it brilliantly and obviously knows exactly what he's doing. And Fred just inspired me. I looked at Manga Manga, a history of Japanese comics, and I thought it can be done and you can find a publisher to do it. And that really gave me the, the courage to go on. To begin with, I did what every new author does. I did a synopsis and did sample chapters. I wrote about half of what I proposed the book to be and started schlepping it around publishers. And in those days, that involved looking through telephone directories, finding publishers, checking out what they did in bookstores because you couldn't do this on the Internet, or by calling them up and saying, excuse me, what kind of book do you publish to a series of either bored or engaged receptionists. Then trying to get an appointment with the publisher, then if you could actually get past the stage of making an appointment, showing up very nervously in your best suit and your best shoes with your little manuscript, presenting it to them and having them either look uncomprehending or just say no. Wow, that's a lot of effort. I did this um, around the day job and around writing for, uh, let's see, 12 years. Wow. Uh, and then I finally got... Uh, earlier, earlier on in the process, ten, 10 years in, I got the opportunity to do something wonderful. I got the opportunity to do some science fiction um, convention, organizing and administering and helping with. And that I'd done Trek, Trek fandom conventions and gradually moved into SF conventions. That gave me the opportunity to pitch to put some anime at a British convention. And so in 1990... The British National Science Fiction Convention had the first anime program in the UK. We had 37 hours of Japanese animation. And it was largely down to some wonderful American fans who were friends of mine and European fans, who friends I'd made on this journey to try and write my book, who very generously supplied us with, with, with totally illegal at the time, mm -hmm. uh, videotape. And so we were able to put a program together and, and the guy who introduced me to anime, who is still my partner all these years on, and I sat down and watched anime every evening for four months. Bundles of tapes arriving from the States every week and us sitting down and watching them. That it, sounds pretty fun, actually. It was great. I mean, even even if it's hard for kids today to imagine because you can click on your, on your, your computer and you can get the latest download from Japan in high res. Mm -hmm. We were looking at sixth-generation degraded videotape copies of Hokuto Ken, very badly dubbed, and it was great. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw um, My Neighbor Totoro, which is still my favorite film, in Japanese in a not-too-great version in 1989, and that started another journey. I fell in love with Miyazaki on sight. But we, we, we managed to watch anime for, for long enough to put together this program, put it out at the convention, and it was a sensation. People were coming up to me all weekend saying, where can I get this stuff? It's fantastic. It's amazing. I've never seen anything like it. So at the end of the convention, on, on the, the Monday afternoon, because the, the National Science Fiction Convention in Britain happens over a four-day holiday weekend, so people come down Thursday night, they don't have to work Friday, it's a national holiday, then they don't have to work Monday, that's a national holiday too, you can have a, a really good get-together. So on Monday in the bar at lunchtime, we had a get-together and said, how many people want to go on? staying in touch and, and trying to find out more about this. And we got about 150 people. And back in those days, again, internet in its infancy, not everybody having computers, how you did fan circles was everybody subscribed to a fanzine and chipped in a little bit of money for the printing of the zine or the newsletter. Mm -hmm. And they were old school, pasted up, photocopied and posted out to people. That's how we started Anime UK. We started it as a fan newsletter. And then we had an, another enormous stroke of luck in that as, as we attracted more and more interest, each copy would circulate around its, its reader's group of friends. We'd get more and more subscribers. Um, one of our subscribers was a guy called Will Overton. Um, we, we didn't know Will before. We'd met him at the science fiction convention, and he was really enthusiastic. And he happened to work for a business publisher. They did business forms and business magazines and that kind of thing. But he took the newsletter, this little photocopied paste-up thing, into his boss. And his boss said, what's that you're reading? And looked at it and said, this, this looks amazing. I've never seen anything like this before. So Will said, well, the people who are doing this, 
probably know more about this stuff than anybody else in the country. Um, do you want to have a chat to them? We went in and saw Peter Galwell's boss, and Peter said, look, if I could put some money up, would you do a professional magazine? And that was how Anime UK, the newsletter, became Anime UK, the magazine. Four of us, me, my partner Steve Kite, Will Overton, and Peter Gull, knowing nothing, never having published a, a, a magazine before, never, Peter, with a great background in design and print, he was one of the best metal typesetters ever before. Will, with a great background in art, Steve and I, with, with the, the best knowledge of anime in the country at the time, we put out a magazine. Um, and it was, it was wild. It was, it was really crazy. Um, we were in small offices in London at the top of a very old house on Mortimer Street. And all kinds of people would come up those stairs. People would come from Japan who happened to be in London and had found Anime UK because it quite quickly got distribution in Asia and, and came to see us. And we got some great contributions that way. Um, Jonathan Clements went on to be co-author of the Anime Encyclopedia, but first worked on Anime UK for many years, picked up a copy as he was coming back from his year, uh, his degree year teaching in Taiwan at Heathrow Airport and thought, my God, I bet these people, you know, this is so glossy, this is so professional. These people must have tons of translators. Do you suppose they could find me an opening? And he rang us and, and, and said really, really humbly, uh, you know, I'm just starting out. I'm still in, 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 in university, but... I just wondered if you could use a translator. And we didn't have a regular translator, so we just bit his hand off and said, yeah, come in. And he became part of the team. We just had the best time. And one of the things that I'm proudest of about Anime UK is that there are people who are now professional artists, people who are now professional novelists, people who are now professional journalists and graphic designers and work in the games industry who got their start on that magazine. And that is just such a great thing to have been part of. Wow, it sounds like uh, kind of an, an amazing journey, just getting up to the magazine, and that's not even to to the encyclopedia. So so how long did the, did the magazine run for? The magazine ran until um, 1996. So we had five years, which is, is not bad for a small niche magazine. Uh, but the end of it, absolutely broke my heart. I'm not allowed to discuss the end of it because there are, there are legal constraints on me, but it was quite heartbreaking at the time. But in the process of setting up the magazine, we found that that gave anime a bit of a push. And the other thing that gave anime a bit of a push was, of course, the launch of Akira in 1991, the, the, the autumnal movie. Mm -hmm. um, Akira caused a sensation in Britain because it wasn't what we expected of animation. Um, no fluffy animals, lots of sex, lots of violence, lots of drugs, rape, teenagers running wild. Uh, it was it was in the view of much of the British press a disaster, and in the view of almost all British youth and most film fans, one of the greatest things they'd ever seen. But we got quite a strong media back clash against anime in the couple of years after Akira, to the extent that we actually got questions asked in Parliament about it, and headlines in national papers about it, all saying how terrible it was, which naturally did anime no harm at all in the youth market. Mm -hmm. And that gradually started to create the condition where people began to see anime as something that sold. And a guy called Chris Blackwell, the founder of Island Records, authorized one of his companies, Island World Communications, to start doing anime on video as an experiment. This was the genesis of Manga Video, which is still one of the biggest companies in, in, in the business. Um, and that, of course, gave us more of a push. And so one of the publishers who turned me down when I started schlepping around called me in 1990, late 1992 and said, the conditions are right for this book of yours now. Can we talk about it? And this was the, the anime encyclopedia you were you're talking about, right? So ninety-two, he was he was calling you and saying, Hey, let's get this anime encyclopedia started. No. No. I thought it was that, but when I went in, he said, Look, we really want to do a book on anime, and we know that you're the person to do it because you've been so keen for so long. But the book that you're talking about, a great big volume breaking down anime that people will never get to see because it's old and it's in Japan won't sell. What we want you to do is a fast, picture-heavy, color introduction to anime. 
hmm. which made commercial sense, but oh, it, it broke my heart. I, I, I thought I had that door open and suddenly I didn't have that door open anymore. Um, but a book's a book, you know, and as any writer will tell you, if they can't do the book they want, they'll do the book they're offered. So I did um, anime, a beginner's guide to Japanese animation, which really was a MOOC, you know, one of those little Japanese perfect bad magazine style books. Uh, but it was big and it was bright and it was colorful. It had the opportunity to sell people not just on anime as film, as TV, but on anime as world culture. We had articles on phone cards, which were really big at the time, on collecting anime toys, on anime in Europe. We had chapters on major anime themes. It was a start. It was it was fun to do and it was good to do. And I do still occasionally have people come up and ask me to sign one at conventions, which is, is very touching considering it came out in 1993 and here we are in, in 2017. But it, it, it wasn't the encyclopedia, but it was my gateway book. And, and I shall always love it for that. Right. And so after the anime, the beginner's guide, uh, then after that, uh, you did the anime movie guide. And was that 96? That was indeed. And, and that, was, that was a book that um, I was really keen on doing because it was a step towards the encyclopedia. The format was more what I wanted in the encyclopedia. But what, again, what my publisher said was, we only want things that are available in English. Mm -hmm. There's no sense in dangling goodies in front of people that they're not going to be able to get. It will just alienate your readers. So we stretched things a bit. And they also said, we only want movies. And I said, no, for one thing, that'll be a very short book because there weren't many anime movies available in English at the time. For another thing, it doesn't really cover anime. So let's interpret movies more generously as moving pictures. And let's say that we will accept multi-part series up to, I think we agreed a limit of something like seven or eight parts, and then I stretched that quite a bit. So we were able to do movies, we were able to do video series, we were able to do some TV. Um, and that, to my mind, gave you a more rounded picture of what anime was all about. But still being restricted to only what was available in English didn't really let you explain the genre, because of course back then we were getting only one genre of anime by and large, we were getting the stuff that would appeal to teenage boys. Mm -hmm. So science fiction, action, adventure, but not the breadth and diversity that I already knew then existed in the medium. So that, that was a fun book to do. But we followed that up by um, Jonathan and I decided to do our first project together. And I pitched this to my publishers with the simple line, sex sells, this book is going to sell. And we did the erotic anime movie guide which was a blast to do. Jonathan had been a joy to work with in the time that I'd been working with him on the magazine. And with this book, he was, of course, further along as a translator, further along as a scholar. He developed some marvelous ideas on how classical Japanese art forms fed into anime, including erotic anime. And we treated the whole thing really seriously. Now, the interesting thing about the book was that all its readers treated it really seriously as well. We got a review in a British top shelf men's magazine called Fiesta, which at that time was populated mainly by pictures of, of women not wearing very much. Mm -hmm. Big smiles. It was a nice magazine. It wasn't the kind of grunge thing that you got in some circles. But they reviewed the book and they said, this is absolutely sensational although it has no naughty pictures and it will demand that you think, but you should read it anyway. And I'm terribly proud of that review. Um, and and it, it opened up people's eyes to the fact that in the media, anime was just sex and violence. We were saying, A, it isn't just sex and violence. B, the bits that are sex and violence are sex and violence for reasons related to Japanese culture and Japanese history. So that was, that was a really fun one to do. And then after that was uh, your Hayao Miyazaki book. Uh, and you mentioned that you became really fascinated with Hayao Miyazaki, being able to see Totoro, you said 1989, was it? 89, yes. Yes. Um, and I don't know if it came out in, like, if it was released, uh, I think in the U.S. maybe it was like 93. I think mm -hmm. 20th Century Fox released it and maybe cut some pieces out and then Miyazaki got upset. 
Um, so I think you got to see it before maybe most people did. Well, again, this was thanks to American fans who were stationed in Japan. Um, I got a tape from a friend who had a connection with somebody in the Cartoon Fantasy Organization chapter out in Japan at the time. And they were obviously very well placed to pick things up on home video and pick things up that were taken directly off air and by all sorts of nefarious means. And they were one of the main conduits for fans all over the world to pick up anime in the days before streaming. Somebody would get a videotape in the post and send it out to somebody in the States who would start copying it and sending it to other people who would start copying it. And in that way, anime circulated completely illegally um, that you wouldn't otherwise have been able to buy legally. And I think most people, in fairness, I mean, I, I don't, nobody can condone piracy. But back then, you would not see most anime if not for piracy. And most people did not pirate once something came out on tape legally. Whereas now, unfortunately, you do see people who pirate everything and, and have no regard for the fact that the, the company and the artists are making no money off it, whatever. So, yeah, we, we started our lives as pirates, and it was piracy that brought me to Totoro, and I would do it again in a heartbeat because I still love that movie. Um, when, I, when I watched it, I thought, this is probably the greatest movie I've ever seen. And nothing has made me waver in that opinion since then. I think Miyazaki is a consummate artist, a consummate craftsman. And Totoro, to me, is the sweetest and most honest and most direct thing he's ever made. Um, I absolutely adore it. So when I pitched a book on him to my publisher, my publisher said, yeah. Uh, this was in the mid-90s. And back then, Miyazaki didn't do interviews. He was famously reclusive. He was kind of dragged out to do an interview occasionally. Um, and so we, we approached, obviously we approached Takuma about doing the book. Um, we did it very correctly. Um, and we approached Miyazaki's office and they said, why hasn't she asked to come and talk to him? So you can imagine the dropped jaws in yeah. my publishers on my side of the Atlantic. And we said, well, you know, she hasn't asked to come and talk to him because she didn't think he'd have time because he was making Princess Mononoke at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and there were the descriptions that were flying around around at the time were all the Japanese press were all of, you know, how hard they were working and how hard they were trying to keep it up. Uh, we just didn't think he'd have time. But uh, I think this was in mid-November. And they said he's got a slot in the first week of December if she can be here on this date, he can give her a whole afternoon. Wow. So basically, like, Ghibli invited you to, to talk with Miyazaki. Yep. Wow. Absolutely. And so we got ourselves together within two weeks, got ourselves over to Japan. And because it was such short notice, I actually had to get off a flight at Narita at 6.30 a.m., go into Tokyo, get to the apartment of the friends we were staying with, shower, get straight on, a straight on a train, and get out to Ghibli and Butaya, Miyazaki's own studio. And that was, that was, oh, I did, I, I, I'm glad. I was so jet-lagged. I didn't have time to be nervous. Yeah, I would imagine, I was going to ask about the nervousness, but the jet-lag kind of helped you get through the it. The jet-lag helped, yeah. And, and also, as I, was, as I was going in my, you know, my best interview suit, looking very professional, clutching my little recorder and the whole thing. As I was going out of Harajuku Station, in, sorry, into Harajuku Station to start my trade journey, I passed one of the most beautiful men I have ever seen, dressed in a black rubber kimono with a pink rubber feminine-style obi-sash. Mm-hmm sandals on his feet and his hair pulled up high in a samurai knot and then falling down to about his waist and in fuchsia lipstick to match the obi and he was literally the most beautiful creature i have ever seen and i just Poof, what is that as he whizzed through the barrier one way and i whizzed through it another and by the time i got on the train what with you know seeing beautiful man and being exhausted i really wasn't nervous at all mm -hmm. and then when i got to Ghibli. Um, Miyazaki um, came out into the foyer after I met the receptionist 
and said, oh, do, do, do come with me. We're going to go down the street to my office rather than do it here. Uh, and then we'll come back and you can meet Suzuki-san and uh, have a chat to the people here. So wow. Thought, so you wow. talked to Suzuki-san also. Oh, yes. And we, we walked wow. to Butaya, to, to his private office. And we sat there um, in, in the main reception area. He's got a, a beautiful Scandinavian-style log cabin-type private office. And we sat there for about three hours um, talking and drinking tea. And he was very charming and very approachable. We'd heard that he was very reclusive, that he didn't like to talk. But um, Torrance Smith, the late Torrance Smith, whom we all miss dreadfully because he was such a great anime scholar and anime enthusiast, he said to me that the thing with Miyazaki is until he knows that he likes you and he trusts you, he probably won't say much. Mm-hmm. But once he knows that he likes you and he trusts you, your problem will be finding the off switch. Mm-hmm. And that turned out to be absolutely true. He was a wonderful conversationalist, wonderful interview subject, very generous. Um, really, you know, going out of his way to explain what he meant and be clear. And so at the end of the afternoon, we actually talked until quite late. And he said, you know, you probably better come back and see Suzuki tomorrow because the staff are going to be wrapping up fairly soon and going home. So the next morning, I got back on the train, did the whole journey again, and went into Ghibli. Wow. So when uh, you were talking about talking to Miyazaki-san, and you know he, it, it takes some time for him to figure out if uh, he likes you before he opens up. And obviously, he did open up, it sounds like. Um, but could you tell that from the beginning? Was like How long was it before uh, you saw him open um, up? I think he opened up for the word go, because I think... Um, I think once he's decided to do something, he actually does it. He commits mm-hmm. to it. Um, I think Torrin, Torrin was talking about, Torrin had known him for quite a long time at that point, I think, and was talking about how he was in general. But in my experience, when you're interviewing someone on their home turf, when they're not in a hotel or at a press conference or something, but they're in their office and they're feeling laid back and they're controlling the tempo of everything because you've come into their territory. Most people, I find, open up much more then um, than they do on territory where perhaps they're not so comfortable and they're not feeling so much in control. And, of course, my translator um, for the event was an authorized translator. And so I think he was pretty confident that if he said anything that he didn't want going too far, his translator would edit it for him. Right, yeah. So have, having the comfort of, of the, the translator, I'm sure, helps. Um, what, what else was what's he like? Like, uh, what is his, his personality like? Like, seeing him, of course, on YouTube and, and things like that, you, you get a sense of, you know, someone who, uh, I don't know, it, it, I think there's a tendency in people who are Miyazaki fans to view him as almost godlike, kind of like maybe uh, Osamu Tezuka. Um, but did you get that sort of divine vibe from him? Not a bit. He was he was very very laid back. Um, he was very funny. Um, you know, he was he smiled a lot. He laughed a lot. He smoked a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, he was just a very very welcoming, very professional, very calm kind of guy. He was obviously really happy in his surroundings and he was telling me a story about how he bought the land that his private office Butaya is on. He said that it belonged to a family who would not sell because in the middle of the plot there was a beautiful old tree. I think it was a cypress tree. He did tell me but I can't quite remember. And a pond. And they said everybody who wants to buy this lot wants to cut down the tree, fill in the pond, build condos. But this has been in the family for years, and it's a beautiful patch of unspoiled little garden land. We don't want that. And so Miyazaki said, tell you what, I will promise we will write it into the contract that I will not cut down the tree and I will not fill in the pond. I'll just build my office on the front of the lot here where it fronts the, the lane, and then the back will stay as a beautiful garden area where wildlife can flourish. Because that's what I want. I want a place that's peaceful and in touch with nature. And so they sold to him. And he built Butaya there. And the garden is still there. And it's full of birds. You could hear them singing beautifully outside. In fact, one of them almost did a kamikaze dive onto the window as we were there. There was this, we were talking, and there was this thud, you know, really loud thud. And I jumped. I was quite startled. And Miyazaki 
opened the French doors. He had huge glass windows in the walls. He opened the door and he looked out and brought it in. And the translator said, oh, they're, they're always doing that. The glass is so clear that birds just fly into it because they can't see it. And uh, a thrush, I think it was, had knocked itself out against the glass. So he brought it in and there was a bit of fussing around while he got his secretary to go away and find a cardboard box and some towels from the restroom. And then he put the bird by the wood burning stove in this box in a bed of towels. And he put a book on top of it so that the bird wouldn't fly away when it came around, fly around the room getting confused. And he said, it'll be fine. They do this all the time. It'll be fine. So we carried on with our talk. And after about an hour, an hour and a half, noises coming from inside the box. And he opened the lid and gave this big smile and said, it's fine. And then he took the box outside and opened the lid and put it down on the deck. And the bird flew off again. And that was just so beautiful. That was, that's the, the sort of man that I met. Wow. It, it sounds like just a very Ghibli thing to do. Uh, I don't know. It sounds like something from one of his movies. It does, but I, I think he very much minds his life and uh, the lives of people around him for his movies. And it was it was just a very beautiful thing. And I know that uh, I've never thought of Miyazaki as godlike. I do think of him as a, an astonishing craftsman and an astonishing artist. I know that many, many people do think you know, if Hayao Miyazaki says it, it cannot be wrong. But to me, he's just a really sincere human being. He doesn't care whether you agree with him or not. Somebody told me a few years back that they asked him at a press conference in, I think, Germany, what did you think of Helen McCarthy's book about you? And he said, I've never read any books about me. He just doesn't read anything that people write about him because to him, his work is what matters. What people think of his work is secondary. Hmm. He's, he's very, very, very grounded, really a remarkable man. Yeah, yeah. I think that's and that, that's a hard thing to do when you when you create something to ignore uh, what people say about it and focus on the work. But then he always had more work to do. He's, he's always thinking. I think this is something he has in common with Tezuka. I mean, as you probably know, he wrote in in his his collection of writing starting point about seeing Tezuka as a as an, an elder brother, someone he had to prove himself against mm -hmm. to, be, to, to be worthy in the, the family of anime and manga. But I think that his own, his own similarity to Tezuka is such that Tezuka famously said, um, and this is in one of Fred Schott's books, I have so many ideas. I could have a garage sale for ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think Zaki is the same. He knows that he has a lot more pictures in him than he will ever make. Since we're since we're on that subject about um, so Os Osamu Tezuka and then Hayao Miyazaki and and people who, who are that prolific, I know recently um, people have talked about Makoto Shinkai, who did uh, Your Name, which is uh, now the highest grossing anime movie in Japan. Uh, it knocked Spirited Away out of the top spot. Um, and a lot of people are saying he's the next Miyazaki or he's, you know, every once in a while people will say someone is the next something. Um, but I was wondering uh, your opinion on that because I've, I've heard that so much now. I absolutely love Shinkai's work and he has a remarkable talent. But you have to remember that people were saying he was the next Miyazaki when he'd actually published less than 40 minutes of animation. Hmm. When Voices of a Distant Star came out after he'd done She and, she and Her Cat. People were saying, oh, the next Miyazaki. Nobody can be the next Miyazaki, even assuming they wanted to be, until they've spent quite a long time making quite a lot of movies. Shinkai is very much his own person um, and very much his own style of concern. The thing that worries me a little about Shinkai is that alongside all that supernatural beauty and that wonderful sensitivity to emotion, he is so far in a very narrow range. Mm -hmm. He's making a very specific picture. And in many ways, he's making the same very specific picture for the same very specific audience. He's doing it beautifully, absolutely beautifully. He is a breathtaking filmmaker. But 
I would like to see him make a few more diverse movies before I started comparing him with people like Miyazaki or Rintaro Sei or the other great directors of anime. And that's something uh, I'm also interested in, in hearing from you about, uh, you know, now that we're talking about Shinkai and, and more recent anime. Um, how have you seen anime change? Obviously, you, you've had your eye on it. And uh, beyond, besides just being a fan, you've been studying it, you know, mm. since... Uh, 81 or perhaps before and uh, what kind of changes have you seen from the 80s to the 90s to now in essence any entertainment genre never changes because it always follows the money Mm -hmm. that's what it has to do that's what entertainers have to do since storytellers started going around to to firesides in the stone age and in the days of the, the in the bronze age and the days of the middle ages since writers started to write, since singers started to perform, entertainment follows the money. It has to. Otherwise, it doesn't survive. So anime is still following the money. And increasingly, the money is going in two directions. It's going into spin-off products. So anime, which has always been about spin-off products, long before the days of Tetsu and Atom, Tezuka's stuff was being merchandised. The first ma- manga he ever published in a newspaper when he was 17 to 18 in 1946 was merchandised. So anime has been merchandised from the word go. But now with the increasing pressures of piracy and the increasing demand for free content, merchandise is becoming one of the major ways anime makes its money. And that's why it's so wonderful to see new movies like Your Name making money at the box office because money that actually comes from people paying to see the animation is becoming less and less reliable in the industry's balance sheets. Um, The big changes are technology driven always. The move from cinema to TV enabled Tezuka to get animation into every household in Japan in 1963. And that have happened without television technology first of all becoming popular in Japan and then becoming affordable for the average middle class household and then of course the next big stage was the invention of the VCR and the production of the VCR in sufficient quantities to make it cheap enough for people to buy and have at home that pushed a whole new set of anime because all of a sudden programs that were not big enough that were too niche to make mainstream TV and sponsorship could be done in limited runs cheaply on videotape. Then, of course, we got all the the, the extensions of videotape, DVD, and now Blu-ray. Then we went to streaming. Every single major change in the industry has been technology-driven. So those two things, the need to make money out of entertainment and following technology, have been constants. The only things that have changed are the fashions that anime wears. Um, They're dressed up to meet the needs of the highest spending demographic. And then the smaller niche programs tuck in behind and, and meet other demographic needs. So where in the mid 80s to mid 90s, we were seeing science fiction, action, adventure, largely male audience. Now we're seeing stuff that's aimed at a female audience and stuff that's aimed at a male audience, which is softer and less overtly macho alongside the action adventure. I think that's a very interesting trend, and it'll be fun to see where it goes next. So have you seen anything, uh, now that there's such fandom outside of Japan, uh, with places like Crunchyroll and uh, things like that, where people can watch anime the same day or maybe the day after it comes out in Japan, um, does that kind of international exposure, I know back in the 80s you were talking about uh, having to wait and get them from tapes that have been taped, that have been taped, that have been taped, and now people can get it the next day. It's translated, it has subtitles the next day. Um, does that sort of affect the industry in Japan, or does Japan, uh, does the industry in Japan sort of ignore the international element? Oh, no, we can't afford to. And, and in, in two ways, it can't afford to ignore the international element for the money. And that's why you get studios like Madhouse doing deals with companies like Marvel to provide content for, for the Marvel machine. 
but it also can't afford to ignore it because of the talent. It's been a very, very long time since Japanese animation was produced exclusively by Japanese people because there just aren't that many Japanese people who will work at the kind of wages that the anime industry pays. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you've ever seen that wonderful promotional film that Toy Doga put out for Hakujaden, um, their, their big movie in the 50s, it shows their marvelous new facility. And you've got rows and rows of men in business suits and ladies in smart blouses and white gloves doing the trace and paint, doing the in-betweening, doing the key animation. Um, that just doesn't work anymore. Uh, most studios now, as, as they have done since the mid-90s, outsource things to other cheaper Asian countries, outsource things to tiny studios that can turn things around on computer. And of course, increasingly, a number of foreigners who love anime, people like Thomas Romain, um, people like Michael Arias, are going to Japan and saying, we're not going to colonize, we're going to learn the language, and we're going to bring our skills to this industry, working on anime in Japan. Now, I think they're people who could reasonably choose to go into the animation industry in in their own native countries and do very well. But something about the magic of the way the Japanese make animation makes them want to work within the anime industry. And that, I think, is very interesting. And I want to get us uh, back on uh, talking about the anime encyclopedia. I know we went off talking about Miyazaki for a little while. And uh, so you, you ended up publishing the anime encyclopedia in 2001. That, that's a very, sorry to interrupt you, but that's a very short way of saying it. Um, my Miyazaki publisher, Stonebridge Press in Berkeley in California, wonderful, wonderful publisher devoted to all aspects of Japanese culture. And they are so fabulously inclusive. Then they don't dismiss anything. They just say, this is an aspect of the culture. Let's see if it would make a book. They took a huge chance on doing the anime encyclopedia because even the first edition was a big book and a big commitment for a small publisher. And and one of the things that I think people forget is that when a publisher decides to do a book, they commit their time, their energy, their dedication, and their company's money, usually for several years. So it's it's a big, big risk. So when, when Stonebridge um, said, what would you like to do to follow up Tezuka? I told them about the anime encyclopedia. And by then, I knew that with the help of Jonathan, whom I'd already worked on a book with, we could do it between us. And they said, okay, um, let's do it. But the planning stage of of getting to there took us, I think it took us the best part of three years to write. And we we wrote, Jonathan was all over the globe at the time, um, and I was in London. And so we would use the internet to stay in touch. We would each write pieces, critique each other's pieces, um, tweak and twist and suggest. What we wanted was a book that had both of our voices quite clearly. We didn't want one blended voice because we both have very distinct opinions and very distinct ideas and we come from very distinct backgrounds. And we thought that the interplay of those two voices was a really good thing. But I have such respect for Jonathan as a scholar and as a researcher that I would really always value anything he had to say about anything I'd done. So he reined in some of my wilder excesses and I got him to go a bit bit more adventurous on some things that... that uh, he wasn't quite so adventurous on. And we arrived at the book between us. And when it appeared, we actually launched it at Anime Weekend Atlanta. Um, no, sorry, that was the second edition. I'll tell you that story in a moment. When the book appeared, we weren't sure how it would be received. And the most encouraging thing for us was that film school libraries started to buy it in droves. Wow. Libraries generally loved it but film school libraries absolutely adored it and about six months in we were getting calls from all the the different anime distributors that we worked with saying so you say this about this title in the anime encyclopedia that's decided us to go buy it so we began to feel this was a job worth doing And over the next few years, people said to us, you know, when is it going to be relaunched? When is it going to, you know, when are you going to do a new volume? It took us till 2011 to do the second edition, partly because during that time we had other things going on, um, partly because Stonebridge had to, again, 
get the money together to do that second edition. And partly because binding technology was not um, entirely ready for the second edition till about 2009. There's a limit to how much you can do in a perfect bound volume. And we keep pushing it. Yeah, it's it's, it's quite massive, I'm sure, for people who haven't seen it. Um, it's quite big. And and so you pushed the limits of, of, of how big how big a book could be? A perfect bound book, yeah. Um, somebody said to us it can't be an encyclopedia because it's only in one volume. Um, well, the next one, if there is a next print edition, it can't be only in one volume because the, the current print edition is actually hardbound and we cannot hardbind it any bigger. Wow. So it's, uh, that's the third edition that came out in 2015. Um, and that, again, I thought, how many of these are we going to sell? And I said to Stonebridge, you know, be really cautious because you, you, you've got to think about who is going to hand over the, the, the price of a book that size and that specialized. But again, they've sold extremely well. Libraries, even though we now have an ebook edition, libraries want a copy of record. Libraries want a copy on the shelf. And, and that's been a great great benefit to us hopefully by the time we come to do assuming we come to do a fourth edition printing technology will have stretched a bit and libraries will still want to buy print yeah i wanted to ask about that now uh you said so the third edition came out in 2015 yes and uh so in two in 2001 uh i i'm not sure if, if wikipedia was out at that point or if it was it was still in its infancy um, but I was wondering, how has the, the response uh, changed or has it stayed the same since the 2001 edition to the 2015 edition, where in 2015, you know, Wikipedia is filled with information about, uh, about anime and, you know, animes have their own wikis and things like that. It's amazing how many of them got updated in the three or four weeks after the third edition came out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because a lot of... Three or four weeks after the second edition came out. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, so, so Wikipedia draws from the anime encyclopedia. I think that if they are being completely honest, there is no serious writer on anime who doesn't draw from the anime encyclopedia. And th th this sounds really arrogant, but it's kind of like Miyazaki said about Tezuka, that he had to prove himself against Tezuka. And in order to do that, of course, he had to know what Tezuka was doing. He had to become a really powerful, strong writer and animator himself so that he could measure his work. I, I believe that what we've achieved in the Anime Encyclopedia between the two of us with our fabulous team of publishers and editors and our wonderful translators and our wonderful beta readers and our readers who write in and send us ideas and thoughts and comments and corrections when they think we've got it wrong. What we've achieved there is a solidity and a respectability. And now there are still a lot of people who say, oh, the Anime Encyclopedia, you don't need that. I can get it on the web before they go and post things on their own website. Um, we do get that a lot. We get that an enormous amount. A lot of people have been knocking us and putting us down since issue one. We don't care because the people who respect us are such solid, such remarkable people that we know we must be doing something right. And when they tell us that we're getting it wrong, then we know that they care enough about the project to help us improve it. And mm -hmm. that it's, it's wonderful. It's, it's like being part of an enormous team, like being the spearhead on a huge deadly weapon that's going to slice through misconceptions about anime. And the, the thing that, the other thing that I'm really proud of on the encyclopedia, and I'm proud of so many things about it, is that we set out to set anime in its proper context, to present the whole range, to rescue unknown animators, unknown color designers, unknown directors, porn directors from obscurity. We set out to say, look, this isn't some airy fairy exotic thing from a fabulous land this is an industry this is a mythology this is a history that has real solid value in all its aspects and we're going to show them to you so since you you started in in 1981 uh studying anime then you got to 2001 publishing the anime encyclopedia 2015 
got the third edition done. Um, in, in all that time, uh, how have you seen fandom change and seen uh, the study of anime change? Because uh, I, I believe you're, you're maybe one of the first people to, to study it seriously. And uh, now there are colleges that have anime studies uh, classes and things like that. Um, but uh, but how, how have you seen it change uh, from, from your perspective? Well, as you say now, there, there are colleges that study anime. There are universities all over the world that will allow you to study anime. I'm currently acting as an advisor to a PhD student in a university in South Africa. Wow. Who is writing a thesis on anime. Um, and I have oh such respect for the scholars there because they are working in really difficult political conditions. And what my, 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 my PhD candidate says is that her students, the people she teaches, are just so dedicated to scholarship and to knowledge and to understanding the culture of the world. And yet they're working in very uncertain times, in very difficult conditions. And, and that, that gives me such hope that a country like South Africa, which has got such a conflicted past and such a difficult political situation, has so many students who want to look at the world with open eyes. That's, it's, it's inspiring. That is wonderful. But looking at anime scholarship in, in the Anglophone countries, which are the ones I know best, and, and let's not forget there are great anime scholars right through Europe. There are great anime scholars in Scandinavia. There are some wonderful, wonderful scholars in, in countries like Russia, in, in, in Eastern Europe. Um, having said that, there are a great many anime scholars who are studying in very narrow specializations. Many like me challenge linguistically, um, but not all as bloody minded as me, only study stuff in English. Now, I'm not saying that that's an invalid scholarly choice because I can see benefits there. But to me, if you're studying a Japanese medium and you're making assumptions about what Japan thinks about it, I know how difficult it is to do that if you don't have a really good command of the language. So what I, I always hope to see is more linguists studying anime, more linguists studying manga, more people with a really solid grounding in the language looking at it. And the other thing that I do find a little disturbing is how many texts one reads from, from European scholars, British scholars, American scholars, Australian scholars, um, do not pay attention to Japanese scholarship. Hmm. Japanese anime and manga scholarship got perhaps a slightly slower start than in the West because Japan was a very poor country and indeed an occupied country for um, a, a good long time in the last century and didn't really start to study its own popular culture seriously as far as I can see until the um, late 70s, early 80s. And even then, it can get a head of steam behind it until possibly as recently as 20, 20, 22 years ago. So Japanese scholarship itself has had a struggle to get to the stage where it's working with. We as Western scholars of their material owe it to them to take them seriously and include their work in our consideration. And in fact, that was what I was doing when, you, when, when we began this talk. I was noodling about on the computer trying to get my not very good Japanese brain and my dictionaries through a piece of Japanese text. Now that's that's a difficult process. I know how difficult it is. I'm really not very good at it at all. But I don't think you can talk about Japanese art without attempting to engage with some Japanese writing on it. And uh, to your point of uh, the, the newness of the, the study, um, our last week's guest, uh, Ian Martin, who writes about uh, Japanese music, um, his book talked about uh, even the, the study of Japanese music is, is pretty recent. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested to hear that, that it's the same with anime. Well, it's interesting how many parallels there are in, in many branches of popular culture across the world. One of the things in, in the piece I was reading today was a, a Japanese um, cosplayer a uh, long-time cosplayer from the very early days of Japanese cosplay, which are a big interest of in mine, talking about how 
when they started cosplaying at Japanese science fiction conventions, and back then it was called costume show, it wasn't called cosplay. When they started, they were looked down on by literary science fiction fans because they were media fans who dressed up, they weren't serious. Now I had the exact same experience as a Trekkie in the late 1970s in Britain, when we would go along to science fiction conventions in our costumes and the literary fans would look down on us because we weren't serious. And I gather from American friends, the same thing happened to them at many American literary conventions. But of course, because America was a much bigger, much richer country, there were lots of media conventions springing up that they could go to and be on their own. But in order to avoid being looked down on rather than their interest in visual media being celebrated, they had to go off into a media ghetto. And thankfully, that's mostly gone now. But it was a similar experience that we were finding in Japan, in Britain, and in America at the same time, that we're fans of science fiction and fantasy. We love it in all its forms. We love it as books. We love it as, as visual presentations. We love it as costume. Some people think that we should only love one form and that there's a hierarchy of worthiness among these forms. And that was such, reading that this evening just brought it home to me so vividly, conversations that I had with friends and things that we wrote about fandom at the time. We share that common experience. And I think that in fact, there is far more in first world cultures, so-called developed cultures, there's far more that unites our experience than that divides it. I'm sure that an anthropologist could make a great deal of that statement. Right, right. Do do you do you see any anything uh, different now with the internet and and people uh, sort of communicating their their different fragmented interests and uh, being able to like spread out into all these these different interests? I guess what I'm getting at is is back in the in the 70s and 80s when. Uh, people who were starting out with cosplay, which was new, the literary science fiction writers would look down on them. Um, and now cosplay has been around long enough that, you know, it's, it's accepted. Um, is there any kind of like new fandom that people look down on or is it kind of, is there more acceptance broadly because people are exposed to more? Well, of course, um, 15, 10, 15 years ago, people were talking about fans of Naruto as Narutards. Oh, I forgot about that. And that still goes on. You know, within individual groups of fans, people patronize people that they think like something stupid or that don't like their stuff. But the worst thing in fandom, um, in any fandom, and sadly it still happens in all fandoms, is the way that women are treated by some male fans and sadly by some other women. Mm. There is absolutely no excuse online or offline for trolling, for name calling, for viciousness. And the people doing it know there's no excuse for it because they do it under pseudonyms. Right, right. In my experience, if, if you're not ashamed to own an opinion, you don't put a fake name to it. And I am as, as a feminist, as a woman, as a human being, I am just appalled, not just by Gamergate, but by the amount of this that goes on generally. The um, voice actor and DJ Greg Ayers does a session at a lot of American conventions called It Gets Better. And it's basically a session that he started because so many of his young teen fans were saying to him as if he were a big brother because they didn't have anyone else they could confide in. I'm having a really hard time here. I'm getting picked on, I'm depressed. I'm considering suicide. Hmm. He still runs those sessions at conventions. That's that's a disgrace. I mean, we are supposed to be an inclusive, intelligent community, instead of which we're behaving like some some tribal religious faction in, in, in some of our places. And people are afraid to stand up and say, this is wrong, and it is wrong. And sadly, that has gone on in fandom. It's moved from a kind of mild condescension to women by male literary fans, stereotyped in my day as people in tweedy jackets with beards. Um, but they, they were patronizing, but they weren't actively hostile. Now, young women and young men who are not perceived to fit particular stereotypes face the most dreadful hostility 
And there is no excuse for it. And I would like to see it stop. Yeah, definitely. And especially, you know, being uh, a subculture of, um, at least at least for myself, uh, I was into, I guess, things you could say that are nerdy because I didn't fit into other uh, categories. Um, hmm. So, you know, it, it's kind of a, a place of, of, of retreat and, you know, finding people that are like you and, and something very positive. Um, so, yes, it is. It's very unfortunate that there's negativity and the tribalism that you, you mentioned. And at least on the Internet, you can find like minded people. But one of the problems is that you can also attract the attention of people who are not at all like minded. So the place where you as a, a person who perhaps hasn't got anyone in their immediate circle, their small town, their school, their, their family environment, who gets what they love and has that ability to connect and say, yeah, I, I love this stuff too, I get this, let's do this together. The place where they can find that is also the place where they can be terrifyingly attacked by strangers for no reason. Because mm -hmm. it's a place where they can stand up and say, hey, I'm, I, I enjoy this, this is me and this is what I like. And where some people will say, great, me too, and start a, a, what could be a, a lifelong friendship, but other people will say, hi, stupid idiot, and start name-calling and whatever. Um, it's, it's, it's a very strange thing, and that, I think, is, is, is much more serious than any other development in anime, and not only in anime, but right across hmm. the range of popular culture. Well, before uh, we, we wrap up, I wanted to uh, uh, ask you real quick about something that you, you mentioned you're doing soon, um, since we're on the topic of fandoms and, and conventions and hopefully very positive convention that you're going to, uh, the FansCon, uh, Fandom and Neomedia Studies Conference, uh, March 18th. Um, mm -hmm. So w would you like to talk about that? I'd like uh, people to hear a little bit about what you'll be doing there. I would absolutely love to. Well, FANS, Fandom and Neomedia Neo Studies, is an academic c conference set up within Project ACON which is the longest continuous running American fan convention. Um, any convention has a lot of scholars at it because SFF um, attracts us nerds. And so you will quite often find a collection of scholarly nerds talking about their own thing in the bar in a corner next to a collection of gaming nerds, next to a collection of figure painting nerds. Um, and that's great. And these scholarly nerds at Acon said, okay, we've got this venue here. Let's see if we can get some rooms and actually run an academic conference. I had the honor of being their first ever keynote speaker. And uh, I've been an, an enthusiastic member ever since. And this is their first overseas event. Fans has, is launching Fans Japan with a, a one-day symposium called Stitching Time, which is devoted to the practice and the scholarly theory of cosplay. And my partner, Steve Kite, and I are going along there because it's being run by Professor Darren John Ashmore of Yamanushi Gakuin University, who is also a member of the Board of Fans and whom I've known for many, many, many years since the birth of fandom in England. He's an English guy teaching at a Japanese university which welcomes international students. And the university is supporting fans in putting on this one-day symposium. And I believe you have a link for it. And I'm, I understand it's still possible to get a few places. Um, the university has been very generous in giving us space, but we've virtually run out of it. But it's a completely free event, providing you can get yourself to Kofu. They even pay for lunch. So I would definitely encourage everyone to come along because we're going to have my session on um, the history of cosplay and how to how, how I want to approach the history of cosplay and, and to see the history of cosplay as a scholarly discipline developed. Um, we're going to have a session from some people who have done some remarkable recreation work on uh, Edo-era Japanese armor. Uh, there are going to be various other sessions on different aspects of cosplay, both practice and scholarship working hand in hand to try and present uh, a really rounded picture of how this very dynamic art form is going forward. So that's the 18th of March in Kofu, and we very much hope that maybe one or two readers will be able to, listeners will be able to make it over there. 
there are still a few places and it would be great to see you there. Yes, and we have a, a link for that. I'll put that in the description and the show notes so that people can find that and hopefully make it to Kofu and, uh, and go see your symposium. That would be absolutely wonderful because one of the things that has always excited me about popular culture is how constant it is, is, is how, it, how it renews itself. And I think the interesting cosplay is one example of that. So it'd be great to see more people get involved. So finally, before uh, we wrap up, I have one last question. Since uh, you've been uh, studying anime for for so long and written so much about it, I wanted to get maybe, I know this is a tough question, your top five favorite anime of all time, series or film. Well, everybody's top five or top ten changes from time to time. My number one has been, since 1989, My Neighbor Totoro, because I consider it a perfect film. My number, in, in, any, in any genre, in any medium, in any country, it is my favorite film. My number two has to be Legend of Galactic Heroes, because that series has everything. It has Aryan blondes in great uniforms. It has conflict. It has drama. It has passion. It goes on for a very long time. My number three, Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, because I adore that manga, and it's so cool to finally see it getting animated. My number four is the whole Macross saga, uh, the original Macross, obviously, and the wonderful movie Macross, Do You Remember Love? Uh, it, it's really tough to, to narrow down to only five, but if I were narrowing down there, I would have to say Tokyo Godfather, Satoshi Kon's great Christmas movie, which is one of the most revelatory movies about Japan in the early 21st century and is, is an incredibly beautiful, incredibly moving film. So right now, those are my top five. If you ask me next week, I think Totoro is still going to be number one because it's been number one since 1989, but all other bets are off. Well, maybe we'll we'll get to you again next week and get get an updated <laughs> list. Uh, Tokyo Godfathers is my number one. For oh, sure. it's, it's a fabulous movie. It really is. So, Helen, Ellen McCarthy, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And, uh, yeah, we, we'd love to talk to you again sometime. Well, thank you very much. That will be my pleasure. And, and let's hope that after the symposium on the 18th, we'll have a lot more cosplay scholars to talk with and to talk about. Definitely. Thank you again.